Let's open our Bibles to Exodus 21. So we're back to Exodus today. And uh, so we're working our way through the book of Exodus. And as you can see, it takes a while to work through a book of the Bible. I mean, there, you can do it quickly, but we tend to like to take a chapter. Sometimes we don't even take a whole chapter. Like today, we're not going to take the whole chapter. We're going to tackle the first 11 verses of Exodus 21. What is amazing to me as we began this, um, I, don't know, I guess a number of years ago, where we would just begin to systematically go through the Scripture and go through and work verse by verse through a book of the Scripture, it's amazing to me how relevant the Bible is, no matter where you are. And today, as we come into Exodus 21, to be honest with you, Exodus 21 is one of those chapters of the Bible that people don't really like to deal with. It makes them uncomfortable because it deals with an uncomfortable Subject. It deals with the subject of slavery. And so a lot of times we like to just gloss over these things because we don't have good answers or we don't rightly divide the word of truth. And if we think of the Bible and read the Bible strictly in the context of the culture we live in today and we read it through the filter that is given to us by the world or the culture or the media, we're going to misunderstand. And we're never to read the Bible like that. We're never to read the Bible through human lens, through the lens of the world or the lens of the culture. We're to read the Bible with eyes that are seeking to see Christ and the truth of God. Well, who is the truth of God? He has a name. His name is Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So I'll say this again. It's really very simple what the subject of the Bible is. The subject of the Bible in one word is Christ. So let's uh, read Exodus chapter 21. Let's read the first 11 verses. We'll start there and uh, we'll see how far we get. Maybe we'll uh, finish... Well, I won't even say that. You know what I was going to say, but I won't say it. Exodus 21, verse 1. Follow along with me. Now these are the judgments which you shall set before them. If you buy a Hebrew servant, you shall, he shall serve six years. And in the seventh, he shall go free and pay nothing. If he comes in by himself, he shall go out by himself. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master has given him a wife and she has borne him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters and he shall go out by himself. But if the servant plainly says, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will not go out free then his master shall bring him to the judges. He shall also bring him to the door or to the doorpost. And his master shall pierce his ear with an awl. And he shall serve him forever. And if a man sells his daughter to be a female slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves. 
do. If she does not please her master who has betrothed her to himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people since he has dealt deceitfully with her. And if he has betrothed her to his son, he shall deal with her according to the custom of daughters. If he takes another wife, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, and her marriage rights. And if he does not do these three for her, then she shall go out free without paying money. Father in heaven, we ask that you would open our hearts and open our minds. That as we look at your gospel, that you would change us. That you would renew our minds to your truth. That you would, by the power of your Holy Spirit, illuminate this word to us. That it would change and transform us for your glory. We ask this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the Bible... If we just read this, if you pick up a Bible and someone said, hey, I want you to go get a Bible and read the first 11 verses of Exodus 21 and tell me what you think about it. If you don't know anything about the scripture, if you don't know anything about God, if you don't understand the context of the scripture, you can read Exodus 21 verses 1 through 11. You can actually read all the Bible and come up with Uh, with a total misconception of what's being portrayed here. What's interesting, in Exodus, Exodus chapter 20 is where God gave the Ten Commandments or the Decalogue to the children of Israel. Now God talked to Moses. He gave Moses lots of instruction. But when God came to the children of Israel and addressed them directly look at exodus chapter 20 look at verse 2 when god gives them the ten commandments when he declares those to the people i want you to see what god says before he says anything before the first commandment it's recorded for us in exodus 20 verse 2 he addressed the people directly at Sinai, and he began by reminding them that he is the Lord who brought them out of the house of bondage. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. He delivered them from slavery. He delivered them from their servitude in Egypt, from the house of bondage. So he goes and he gives the Ten Commandments, he And and now we come to Exodus 21, and he gives these judgments. It says, now these are the judgments which you shall set before the people. And he's giving these judgments or these instructions concerning a Hebrew servant. So God proceeds to command the children of Israel concerning slavery or servitude. And what God commands is far different than what we have commonly come to understand as slavery. Even though it is still slavery, it's still servitude. So, our concept of slavery comes out of all kinds of things. 
in America in particular, our concept of slavery comes from our history as a nation, in particular, the Civil War. Kind of interesting, we began this series on Exodus months ago. We began this before the election. We began it, uh, was done. We began this, and now we're dealing with an issue that is creating controversy. It's creating disruption in and throughout our nation. If it weren't for Hurricane Harvey, the headlines on the news would still be dealing with this issue from our past. I want you to understand something that what the Bible is describing here in Exodus 21 is vastly different than the system of slavery that existed in our nation. And it's vastly different than the system of slavery that still exists in many parts of the world. In case you didn't understand, because we as Americans tend to live in bubbles and we isolate ourselves with entertainment news instead of dealing with reality, do you know that there are more slaves on planet Earth today than there ever has been in the history of humanity? There are more slaves today than there were 200 years ago, than there were 2,000 years ago. So slavery is an issue the Bible addresses because slavery is a reality in humanity. It didn't, it didn't begin a long time ago and, and end a couple of centuries ago. It's not something that ended with a civil war in our country. It's something that has been and continues and will continue till Jesus comes. But if we look at the Bible and read the Bible and study the Bible closely, we will begin to understand some things about slavery that you probably don't think about and you certainly don't hear about. So here is the reality. There is no man that is truly free. We are all slaves. And it has nothing to do with your social status. It has nothing to do with the color of your skin. It has nothing to do with your country of origin. Whether you know it or not, whether you realize it or not, you are, I am, we are all enslaved to someone and to something. The question is, who, to who are you enslaved and to what are you enslaved? That's really the most important question. This idea that we are free is really an illusion, a false illusion, because we are not free. We have freedom. Now don't hear what I'm not saying. We have freedom But there is none of us that are ultimately just free to be and to do whatever we want to do, whatever we want to be. That is an illusion that exists only in our minds. You may want it to be true, but 
one day you'll know the truth and you'll be very thankful that that's not really the case. Many critics of the Bible point out that the Scripture does not explicitly condemn the institution of slavery, but one thing is clear, the Bible does not promote the institution of slavery as we have come to understand it in our modern culture and as it exists today in many parts of the world. The Bible presents the reality of slavery in order to convey to us a vital spiritual truth. I'm going to say that again. The Bible conveys for us, it talks about the reality of slavery in order to convey to us a vital spiritual truth. In Christ, we are set free from being slaves of sin and we are set free to become slaves of God and of righteousness. The end being everlasting life. Now there are people that will kick against that and they don't care what form of slavery we're talking about. If the Bible says I'm a slave to God or a slave to righteousness or a slave to sin or a slave to whatever, I reject it. Because I'm not going to be a slave to anyone or to anything, God included. That is what a lot of people say. And they mean it from their whole heart. And it's not your job to, to try to convince them to believe something different. What they need is not you to convince them or me to convince them that that's not true or that they really shouldn't believe that. Because we can't convince people. What we can do is proclaim the gospel. And the gospel has the power to break into people's hearts and to break down those lies and those misconceptions and those fears. Only the gospel has the power to break that down and to bring someone to their freedom, their true freedom. So let's talk about, let's, let's look at some of these verses here in, in Exodus 21. <clears throat> and what we see here is that the law of God protected the rights of a Hebrew servant. Now, I want you to notice, there's a qualifier here. God says in verse 2, if you buy a Hebrew servant. Somebody said to me, or that somebody asked me this question. You may disagree with me, but I'm just going to present to you the way I presented it to them. Somebody asked me, does God love everyone the same? And my answer is no, he does not. Does God love everyone? Yes. He loves everyone, but he doesn't love everyone the same. Well, how do you know God loves everyone? Because the atheist, just like the most faithful saint, is breathing the same oxygen, taking in the same sunshine, eating the same food, receiving the same nourishment, experiencing the same common grace that we all experience every day as we go about living our lives. And the reason the atheist and the believer can both experience that common grace of God is because God has poured his love out on everyone. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here experiencing 
the fruit of his love, which is the very world around you, the very people around you, the things you laugh at, the things you enjoy, the, the things you draw pleasure from. That's the grace of God. Whether you believe in him or not, it is the grace of God. And the best way that we can understand this reality that God does not love everyone the same way is by a picture that God gives us and he actually even defines it for us. It's, it's the picture of marriage. We are commanded to love one another. But if I loved every woman the way I love my wife, I would be in sin. Now, I'm not commanded to love my wife, but love no other woman. No, the Bible says I'm to love everyone, men and women included. But there's a way I can love a woman and there's a way I can love a man that can be sinful if I try to love them the same way I love my wife. Do you understand what I'm saying? There is a common grace that comes to all men. But there is a saving grace that does not come to all men. How do we know that's true? Because there will be many people who will not be saved. So the reason I say that is because the Bible qualifies here. When it's talking about slavery, God is dealing with his people. So there were Canaanites, there were Jebusites, there were Egyptians. God didn't say, now all these judgments which you shall set before them are for the Egyptians. God had already judged Egypt. Egypt was sinful. Pharaoh was sinful. God delivered his people from that house of bondage. And God now says, you shall not act and do as the Egyptians did. You are my people. For us today, we are the people of God. We are the church of God. We are not to do and to act as the world does. We're not to have the same values the world does. We're not to value the same things the world does. We can value some of the same things, but we don't value all of the same things, right? So God is talking to his people here. If you buy a Hebrew servant, men or women were sold into slavery voluntarily or by court order to pay a debt due to poverty or restitution due to thievery. So if I fall into poverty and I owe a debt to someone and I have no other way to pay that debt, I can basically sell myself into slavery and serve that person until my debt is paid off. If I refuse to pay my debt, if I'm running from my debtors, that person I owe the debt to can go to the judges and say, hey, Pastor Jeff Ripple won't pay his debt to me. And the judges can 
come and say, you must pay your debt and they can enforce me into servitude until my debt is paid. Or if someone is caught stealing and they've got to pay restitution, well, probably if they were stealing, they didn't have the means or they don't have the means to pay restitution. So the court, the judges will give them over to be sold into slavery so that restitution can be made to the person they sold from. So if you buy a Hebrew servant, these men or women were sold into slavery voluntarily by court order to pay a debt due to poverty or restitution due to thievery. These are not men or women kidnapped to be sold into slavery. Kidnapping someone to make them a slave or to sell them as a slave was a capital crime punishable by death under God's law. Did you know that? Exodus 21.16 He who kidnaps a man and sells him or if he is found in his hand shall surely be put to death. The whole system of kidnapping people, putting them on a ship and sailing them across the ocean and selling them into slavery, according to the law of God, was a capital crime. It was not to be practiced by the people of God. So the law of God protected the rights of a Hebrew servant. Now look at this. He shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go free. He shall go out free and pay nothing. So under God's law, there was a built-in provision to ensure release from the bondage of debts owed. This wasn't like Egypt. You're not going to enslave me and keep me here 400 years and make me a generational slave. So when a Hebrew servant was bought, there was a window. They would serve for six years and in the seventh year, so in the beginning of the seventh year, they would be allowed to go out free. There was another provision. It's found in Leviticus chapter 25, verse 10 through 11. It's called the Jubilee year. Every 50th year, Leviticus 25, 10 through 11, and you shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout all the land of its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you, and each of you shall return to his possession, and each of you shall return to his family. That 50th year shall be a jubilee to you. In it you shall neither sow nor reap what grows of its own accord, nor gather the grapes of your untended vine. So when you bought a servant, when you bought a Hebrew servant, it was understood that that servant would serve you for six years, and in the seventh year they would go free. If you bought a Hebrew servant and you were three years away from the Jubilee year, that servant is not going to fulfill his six years. When the Jubilee year comes around, it doesn't matter if that servant you bought has been serving one year or five years, he's going to go free in the 50th year. 
This is the provision that God has put in because what God is talking about is not slavery in the way that we understand it. Now, I'm not saying that type of slavery didn't exist because it did exist. But God has made provision for his people. Protections and provision were made specifically for female servants to protect their rights and their honor. A man could not make promises to a female servant or to her father in order to gain her servitude. So if a father said, I will betroth my daughter to you in exchange, let's say it was in exchange for a debt, and he betroths a daughter. Now, I want you to understand that 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 was not common practice. We are talking about exceptions. Not the common practice. It was not the common practice of Hebrew fathers to go around selling their daughters. That was not common practice. It was not common practice for people to go around selling themselves into slavery. People did that under extreme circumstances. So God is making provision here for those extreme circumstances where people had to do extreme things. But in these extreme circumstances, God says, if a father sells his daughter and that man promises to betroth her, in other words, to take her as a wife, and what would be the benefit of a father giving his daughter to a man for his daughter to become a wife? If this man cannot provide for his family, if he cannot provide for his daughter, what is better for the daughter, the better thing is, is for this daughter to be given to someone who has promised now to take care of her, to provide for her so that her needs will be provided for. She'll be able to produce children and the family line will continue because that was the desire. We live in a very different culture today. There are a lot of people who cannot wrap their mind around this. Well, why didn't she just leave and go off on her own and make her own way? Sounds real good today, but that wasn't reality back then. If a father sold his daughter into servitude, it was for the protection and the life of that daughter. And God knows this. This is why God put the provisions that he put in here to protect those women. So he couldn't just make empty promises. There was an obligation once she came into his house for that man to protect her, honor, and to provide for her as part of not only her service to his house, but if he promised himself to become a husband to her and, she, and they were betrothed, and he had an obligation to treat her as a wife and provide for her as a wife. Well, what if he just said that to the, dad in order to get the girl to become a servant 
But see, this is the other problem in our culture that we live in. We all live in these isolated bubbles, and we don't live in community, and we don't live uh, in relation with one another. We can go to our work, come home from work, go into our homes, lock our doors, and live isolated, and no one has any idea what's happening inside of our homes. That was not the culture. That's not how society worked. It's not how God set up society. It's not how society was meant to work. It's not how it's supposed to work today. This is why we have so much abuse. We have so many things happening because we live in a broken culture. It's not the way God intended it. So there was a, there was a system built in. There was a safety net where a man could not make false promises and then just not keep his word because there, the society, the culture, the judges would call him into account. Because you didn't just take your daughter and give him to someone. You had to go, and, and, and there, this was a community thing. This was an extreme circumstance. And so if God put these provisions in there. And God says, you either have to betroth her and become a husband to her. If you're not willing to do that, then you need to allow her to be redeemed by somebody else who will do that. This is the picture we see in Ruth. This is what happened with Ruth. Boaz gave first place to the other guy. It was his, his place. He says, if you're not going to redeem her, if you're not going to step up and do what's right, then I will redeem her. The guy says, no, you can have her. God says, if you're not going to betroth her and treat her as a wife, then let someone else who will redeem her. Or give her to your son, betroth her to your son, and then she becomes like a daughter to you. She becomes your daughter. And you have an obligation to care for her and to provide for her as a daughter. And if you take her as a wife, and you take another wife, you cannot diminish what is rightfully hers. You can't diminish her clothing. You can't diminish her food. You, can't de you cannot deny her children. You must give her those things. It's her right. So these protections and these provisions were specifically written into the law to protect these servants. See, this is a very different picture of slavery, of servitude, than what we understand. And you hear people say things like, the Bible is an antiquated book, it, it promotes slavery. But we've spiritually evolved, and we understand that Moses didn't know any better. No, Moses knew better. Because God knew better. Moses isn't writing this from his own resources. Moses is writing this as God is giving it to him. And God is dealing with the reality of fallen humanity. It's not that God wanted men, fathers, to have to sell their daughters. It's not that God wanted men or women to have to sell themselves into slavery but because we live in a fallen world, because of the reality that exists, God says this is a reality and you shall not be like the other nation. You shall not abuse and take advantage of 
your brethren like the other nations do. So the law of God provides not only for the protection of the rights of the Hebrew servant, but the law of God provides for the desire of a Hebrew servant. Now look at this. So when this is, as this is written here, and as God lays this out, you notice it says, look at verse 3. If he comes in by himself, he shall go out by himself. If he comes in married, so this is a picture of a man and his wife, and he sells his entire family, he sells his family, he sells the entire family into servitude to pay the debt or for restitution because he's taking his wife with him. So it says if he comes in alone, he's going to go out alone. So he comes in year seven, he goes out alone because he came in alone. If he comes in the first year with a wife, year seven, he's going to go out with a wife. If his master has given him a wife and she has borne him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her master's and he shall go out by himself. So let's say that I am sold into slavery, and I go in by myself. I'm a single slave. And I get to my master's house, and after year one, my master offers me a wife and says, would you like to marry this servant? And we've fallen in love, and yes, I'd like to marry this servant. So I marry the servant. Let's say I'm five years into my servitude and I marry a servant who's just in her first year of servitude. Year seven comes, I am free to go. But the one I married still has five years to go on her service. She doesn't get to go out. I can go, but she still has five years left of servitude. She has to finish that five years of servitude. Now, I can go out free and I can wait for her, or it might be that I don't want to leave my wife and my children whom I come to possess in servitude, who I've come joined to in servitude. So I say, you know, I love my master. I love my wife. I love my children. I choose to not go out. Now, you might say, why in the world would somebody do that? But obviously, people did that. And God made provision. So look at this. Verse 5. But if the servant plainly says, now this is the servant's choice. This is the servant plainly saying, If the servant plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to the judges. Now, this isn't done in secret. This isn't done hidden somewhere. If the servant comes, if I go to my master and I say, look, I want to stay. I want to stay with my wife and my children. I want to stay with you. Can't provide for myself. I've, I've had trouble. I'm happy here. I I want to stay. Me and my wife and my children, we want to stay and be part of your house. The master of that house takes that servant to the judges. In other words, to to the leaders of the city. 
And the, the, the servant would say to the leaders of the city, this is what I want. My master's in agreement. My family is in agreement. They witness it. The judges then instruct the master of the house. There's, there's some question whether they did this at the gate of the city, but generally it's believed that the master of the house and the servant went back to the house that the servant served in, and he went to the doorpost, and he put his ear against the doorpost, and the master would take an awl in this part of their ear, and he would drive an awl through the ear into the doorpost, creating a hole in his ear. Now, what also happened, might be kind of gross to you, but it's, it's really an amazing picture. What also happened, it wasn't just punching a hole in that ear, but there was a portion of that slave, of that servant, who now became part of that house. That servant's DNA, that part of his ear was actually driven into that house, signifying that that servant was a part of that house forever. And this is what the scripture says here. It says, you shall pierce his ear with an awl, he shall, and he shall serve him forever. Now the rabbi, some say, he served him forever, meaning until the jubilee year. And then they were released in the jubilee year. There's others who say, well, we're not so sure that that's the case. There is a case to be made for release at the jubilee year. There is a case to be made that he will serve him forever. Because this was the servant's choice. Regardless, there is an, there's a beautiful picture here. Paul alludes to this mark of a bondservant. So in the New Testament, depending on what translation you have, the word bondservant is the Greek word doulos. It is the word for slave. Most of your modern translations do not translate it slave. They translate it bondservant. But the Greek word, what the word really means is slave. It was the lowest form of servitude, a doulos, a bondservant. And Paul called himself the bondservant or the slave of Christ. Paul put himself in the lowest form of servitude and says, this is who I am. I am the slave of Christ. And Paul alludes to this mark of a slave when he writes to the Galatians. In Galatians 6, 17, he, in the very end of his letter, he says, from now on, let no one trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Paul is alluding to this very thing that Moses writes about, where the slave would be taken to the doorpost of the master's house, and the all would be driven through his ear, and that slave would be linked to that house figuratively and literally forever. Now, they didn't have DNA technology back then, but we know now 
once that all was driven into that doorpost, that man's DNA remained right there. And he became a part of that house, linked to that house. This is the picture. This is the mark in his body that marked Paul belonging to the Lord Jesus. The mark in our life should signify that we belong to the Lord, that we are not our own, but we have been purchased. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 21 through 24. Look at this. Paul writes, Were you called while a slave? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can be made free, rather use it. For he who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freed man. Likewise, he who is called while free is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brethren, let each one remain with God in that state in which he was called. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. This is one of the reasons. You see in the book of Acts, the early church selling their possessions. Why did they do that? Because they were communists? No. <laughs> God, no. They were all about free enterprise and capitalism. Paul was a tent maker. Peter and James and John were fishermen. They were part of the free market. But why did they sell their lands and their possessions? They sold them so that men, their fellow believers, would not have to become servants of other men. They sold their stuff to help those brothers and sisters so that they would not have to sell themselves into servitude in order to pay their debts, to, to, to make ends meet. So the church came together and helped one another so that they could be free. But yet in that freedom, they understood that they were not truly free, but they were indeed slaves of Christ. So here's the deal. Slavery, slavery is a fixed reality for humanity. Paul's not advocating slavery. He's dealing with the reality of it. He's encouraging those believing slaves to become free if possible and to use that freedom for the glory of God, but he also strangely says, don't be concerned about it. Paul telling those believing slaves not to be concerned about it is not the Bible condoning slavery. It is the Bible dealing with the reality of a fallen world and the reality that we are all slaves to someone. And this is exactly what Paul says. He says, if you're free today, you're, you're God's slave. If you're a slave today, you are Christ's freed man. You've been set free in Jesus Christ. Whether you're a slave or not a slave, whether you belong to a master or not belong to a master is irrelevant. Don't be concerned about that. What's important is you belong to Christ. And that's really the question we should be asking ourselves. Do we belong to Christ? The most important question you'll ever ask yourself. And the answer to that question is the most important answer, conclusion you will ever come to. So slavery is this fixed reality for humanity. It's not whether we are slaves. The question is, whose slave are we? In addressing slavery in the Scripture, God is not condoning it. He's commanding us concerning slavery so that we understand the reality of slavery from a biblical and spiritual point of truth. So Jesus affirmed 
the reality of slavery in Mark 10, 44 and 45, when he says, and whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. Even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Paul calls the believers slaves of God. In Romans chapter 6, verse 22, Paul writes, But now having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. He's writing to those in Rome. Do you realize that the overwhelming majority of the population in Rome were slaves? If those slaves had not been so conditioned by the Roman Empire, there were enough slaves in Rome, they, they could have risen up and overthrown that city. The vast, vast majority of the Roman population of that city, of the, of the population of that city were slaves. They were not Roman. Roman citizens, they were slaves. So Paul's writing to the church in Rome and probably most of them that he's writing to are slaves. And this is recorded for us in Romans 6, 11 through 23. And basically what Paul is saying is this, in Christ we have died to sin. And having died to sin, we've been made free from sin, but we were made free from sin not to become slaves to sin again, not to give our bodies and our members to sin. We've been freed from sin so that we can become slaves to God. In being freed from sin, no longer a slave from, to sin, I am now made a slave to God. Now I have been given the ability the right, the privilege, the power to present my members as slaves to righteousness. Paul says you couldn't do that when you were a slave to sin. You couldn't do anything but sin. Now Christ has set you free and you are free from sin. So now present your members as slaves to righteousness because you belong to Jesus. Jesus is our Lord. That means he's our master. He bought and paid for us with his blood. Yes, we are free in Jesus. We are free from sin. We're free from death, but we're not free from him. We are free to present our bodies to him, and we're free to live as one belonging to him. We belong to him. He has redeemed us by his blood, by his very life. Now we belong to Jesus. We are members of his body. Look at Ephesians chapter 5, verse 30 through 32. This is the beauty of Exodus 21, specifically when it's talking about the female servant. And God commanded that she be betrothed. Why? So that she would be cared for, so that she would be loved, so that she would be provided for, so that she would not be left to the devices of others or even her own devices out of desperation. Ephesians 5, verse 30 through 32. This is why marriage is so very important. This is why marriage must be preserved as defined by the Bible, not defined by the culture because the culture doesn't understand marriage. The culture has no clue what marriage is. They can't because marriage 
is spiritual. And the natural man cannot discern the things of the spirit, for they are spiritually discerned. Marriage can only be spiritually discerned. You can go down to Georgetown Courthouse and get you a marriage license and get married all day long does not mean you spiritually discern marriage. People do it every day, and they go to the same courthouse, and they get divorced. They go there to get married. They go there to get divorced. One out of two marriages in the world ends in divorce. Why? Because we do not spiritually discern what marriage is. It's how we can say it doesn't matter. Man with man, woman with woman. People are advocating, why can't I marry my dog or my horse? Well, why can't you? If we're going to change the definition, why, why limit it? No, the definition has been given. Jesus said it's between one man and one woman. Paul writes about the church, about our relationship between Christ, the relationship we have with Christ, the relationship between Christ and his church. And he writes this, for we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. The whole reason God created the institution we call marriage, the whole reason he created it was to give to us a picture of Christ in the church. When did he do that? He did that back in Genesis at the very beginning of the creation. So right there when God created Adam, and he didn't create Eve from the dust of the earth. Remember, he created Eve from the rib from the side of man. It's a picture of the church. Adam is Christ. Eve is the church. Where does the church come from? She comes from the life of her Savior, the life of her bridegroom, the life of her betrothed. Jesus birthed the church out of his very own life, just as God took Eve out of the very life of Adam. It's a picture of Christ and the church. And Paul gives us the commentary right here in Ephesians. So when we begin to understand this idea, even these protections that God puts in place of this daughter given to a man. Listen, the father has given us to his son to be betrothed by his son, to be married to his son, to be loved and cherished by his son so much so that the Bible says we are now bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh, that we have become one with him. This is not a picture of a slave and a master. This is a picture of a bride and a groom, of a husband and a wife. And the, Paul says we have become slaves to God. We have become joined to the household of God forever. Because we bear the mark. What is the mark we bear? I don't have physical marks in my hands and my feet. But that is the mark. That is the mark. Jesus bears those marks in his hands and in his feet. How do we bear? Paul says, I bear the mark of Christ. Whether they were the scars from the beatings he took, You might not have any scars from any beatings, but do you bear the mark of Christ? Does your life bear the mark of the Savior? Does your life bear the mark that says you belong to Jesus?
How do you live your life? How do you walk out your faith? How do you love your wife? How do you love your husband? How do you love your children? How do you love the world around you? Does your life bear the mark of God's house? Does it bear the mark that you've been joined to him forever? Because you were bought, you were purchased by the blood of Jesus. And you are not your own any longer. We are all slaves. Who we present ourselves to obey determines whose slave we belong to, whose slave we are. Christ came to set the captives free, take the mark of the cross, and forever be joyfully joined to him and to his house. John writes this, to those who believe in him, he gives the right to become children of God. We're going to get ready to come to the table. And as you come, I want to encourage you to take the mark of the cross to forever be joined to him. You do that here in your heart. It's not what you do up here in your mind. It's what you do in your heart. It doesn't come from your mind. It comes from your heart. You and I were slaves to sin. Jesus Christ came to set us free. Yes, we are not our own. Nowhere does the Bible say, Jesus set us free and now I belong to myself. That's not, that's not it. Jesus set you free. If he has truly set you free, then you belong to him. Because the only way you can be free from being a slave to sin is to become a slave to God in Jesus Christ. I encourage you, trust in Jesus as you come to the table. Here's your charge. Christ came that we might have life and that we might have it more abundant. That abundant life is not in our human freedom. Abundant life is in the freedom that we gain in Christ. It's the freedom we gain and the abundance we gain when we are no longer slaves to sin, but become slaves of righteousness and of God. So I charge you, church, to seek true freedom to seek the freedom that can only be experienced by becoming His and walking in His way. Father, we thank You for the food next door. Let it be nourishment to our bodies. We thank You for everyone here. And I pray, Lord, everyone, everyone will feel welcome to stay and fellowship and partake of this meal. Let it be a blessing to our missionaries and to those they preach to. Ultimately, God, let it be glory to you. In Jesus' name.